Good morning. Good morning. We're doing uh, lesson number 10. Jesus won their confidence. And just before, I got a couple of emails to catch you up on. Received this one from Gary Jones uh, from our Common Reason in Canada. And he says, we have been reaching out to our brothers and sisters of all faiths this month, and we have two more Common Reason branches, one in Ontario and one in Halifax, and that now makes four Common Reason branches in Canada thus far. We're working to have one in Western Canada soon. David Clark from Ontario stopped here in Nova Scotia on the way to Newfoundland and picked up one case of each DVD series to give out there and take the remainder back to Ontario. We're praying someone in Newfoundland will ask to become a common reason branch. Yes, there is one more thing. I was just chatting via Skype with a friend that uh, is with Paradigm Missions in Uganda. Uh, her name is Linnell. I told her about Common Reason some time ago, and she checked it out and is now using Common Reason to teach the God of Love message to close to 13 villages. Uh, from, what she sa- from what she was saying, it's a new message to the people of Uganda, and most of them are from a religious background and Christian backgrounds. Common Reason is opening hearts and eyes in places with no light, and I mean no electricity or water, but they are now getting the light of God and the water of the Spirit. I will update you with more on this. I asked Linnell to send me an email with an update on this. And so here's an email from Linnell. Hi, Gary. Just wanted to share a little bit about what I've been doing here in Uganda and the work of Paradigm Missions and how Come and Reason has become part of that program. Now that we are in full swing evangelism mode, it has become vital to ensure that the people who are we are reaching... Uh, into the community, not only understand the gospel commission in its holistic context, but also they have a true and accurate picture of God to portray to the people. Sadly, the culture here is one of fear. Beating is the modus operandus of homes and business, and people really feel that taking advantage of others and getting something for nothing is the way to go. Children are not instructed in the way to behave. They are left to roam until an adult is annoyed at them, and then they are beaten and given instructions later. I have witnessed in horror as Christians have, taken, have chosen this kind of management strategy. Women even say they wouldn't feel that their husbands loved them if he didn't beat them to correct them. It's incredibly sad to walk around the block during the evening and hear the screaming of children and women inside houses while the people on the street and the yards pay no mind because it's standard practice. I have been working through the Come and Reason, uh, working through the Come and Reason ministry material with my volunteers during the week, and preach the message of a God of love in Sabbath school and church, and putting it into practice in Sabbath afternoon outreach here in Cotito. They are really drinking in and asking lots of questions and shifting their understanding. The brand new converts who have only ever heard the message of the God of love just smile as I preach and cannot seem to get enough of this great, this great news, which of course it is. As you describe your strategy to give Come and Reason DVDs with every Christian book purchased at your local bookshop, I instantly thought of the high volume of spiritual books available in bookstores in Kampala and how popular they are. We could totally replicate that process here and have a positive impact on people's understanding of God in this way. I really believe this is the only way the country can move forward from its current attitude and functioning. Indeed, it is the only way for all of us. I love Tim's statement in the question and answer time of the God in Your Church series, where it was spelled out clearly that God will not pour out His Holy Spirit on those who um, will not pour out His Spirit on those unless they are accurately representing His character. This is exactly what we are here to do. This is evident in the leaps and bounds we are making in drawing all men to, unto Him. It really isn't our work; it is His, and it's just fantastic to see the truth flourishing. Currently, we desperately need a church building and to accommodate the incredible growth in the membership here. Each week, new souls are added to the congregation, and even those 
who have only attended a few times are bringing their friends, and they are bringing their friends as they see the value of what they're receiving. We desperately want to construct two churches here in northern Karamoja uh, before the end of the year, and we have the land, the building plans, and the builder. Now we are just praying for the $50,000 to make that happen as we shake every tree. I know you'll join us in bringing this before the Lord and putting your mind to the task as well. God bless you as you continue to serve him in whatever way you can. You certainly have been a blessing to me in Paradigm Missions. Kindly, Linnell. Isn't that nice? So moving on to the lesson, uh, Jesus won their confidence. It was the title for the lesson. What do you think of the title, Jesus won their confidence, as you, as you hear that? How? How did Jesus win their confidence? What did he do? What qualities did Jesus... This is how my mind works anyway. I, I read these things I start asking the questions. Well, I wonder how that happened. Well, what did he do? Well, what qualities did Jesus possess? Uh, what did he display that won their confidence? And then I remembered in John six twenty eight to 30, the, the, the uh, religious leaders were having a question, and it went like this. They asked him, what must, we, what must we do to work God, to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They were trying to have confidence in him, have faith in him. What, and what were they looking for as the basis of their confidence and faith? online listener asked that question to begin with and she said when they believe you pose no threat to them they have a much easier time trusting in and confiding in you i believe jesus won people's confidence by demonstrating he posed no threat to them what do you think about that and more you care about what happened you really sincerely cared about that not just you know, platitudes, but he really did care about their well-being, physically, spiritually. I mean, the people whose confidence he didn't gain was the Pharisees. I guess we can talk about that, how he didn't gain their confidence. But they just asked him, what miracle sign will you perform that we may believe in you? Show us a sign and we'll have confidence. So these, they were asking, we want to have confidence in you. Do something so we can have confidence in you. What do you what, they were looking for miracles. What is the importance for Jesus? We're talking Jesus now, not for you and me, to perform miracles. Was it important? Was it important for Jesus to perform miracles? Was it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I hear yes and no. Well, think this through with me. What would have happened if Jesus would have come? And never demonstrated power over sickness, disease, forces of nature, and death itself. He just would have given great philosophy, great teachings, compassion, concern, love, kindness, but he never demonstrated any power over nature. He never demonstrated power over disease. He never demonstrated power over death. We would have another Buddha. But he did show that he was ill. Was it important that Jesus perform miracles? It was important to perform miracles because he had to glorify his Father in love. He only needed to perform them to show his love. If Jesus didn't perform miracles, including raising, raising from the dead himself, that was a miracle too. But he rose Lazarus from the dead. He rose the, the, the little girl from the dead. 
Um, he, so he showed power over death. He showed power over sickness, over congenital deformity, over demons, over nature, walking on water and calming the storms and the wind and so forth. If he didn't have any of these miracles, how would he be different than Buddha? Well, that's like saying today we can't gain anybody's confidence. We'll get to that in a minute. We're talking about Jesus only right now. We'll get to that in a minute. We're coming up to that question next. Okay, but first, because, because in Adventism, I'm going to tell you, uh, and we're going to come to a quote that I think has been misapplied and misunderstood that has undercut this. Yes, it is absolutely true, the character elements that you were going for, the kindness, the compassion, the, the lack of coercion, the online person mentioned, uh, and not be, non-threatening approach, and so forth. These are all critical things. But if he had done all those things without showing the power over all these other forces, without the miracles, how would he be different than Buddha? How would he be different than Gandhi? How would he be different than... You follow what I'm saying? He could speak, number one. <laughs> he can talk. Yeah. He can't talk. Well, Buddha was a real person who did talk. Oh, excuse me? Yeah. All he did is talk. Yeah. He didn't yeah. really put it in action. I'm Chinese, so I know there's a lot of stuff that Buddha said, but he really didn't put any action behind the words. He just spoke. But his philosophies, if you read his philosophies, that's the point. He didn't have the actions that Christ did. Yeah. And this is, so I do think it was important that Christ perform miracles to demonstrate that he was the, and what did he demonstrate by that? If you remember, he said that he doesn't do anything by himself. He does it all through the Father. What's he demonstrate? What, what's the, what was the um, metaphor of a ladder? Do you remember metaphor of a ladder somewhere? Jacob's ladder metaphor vision. And who's the ladder? And what's the metaphor trying to symbolize there? That Jesus is the connecting link between heaven and earth. And through Jesus, all the power and goodness and grace and love and et cetera of, of the heavenly father flows to earth and to humanity through Christ. So it was important that Christ demonstrate that in fact that's true. Yes. So the verse that applies here uh, is that I and my father are one. Believe me that I'm in the father and the father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. So he's demonstrating through his works that he is one with the Father. And then when we look at the types of miracles he did, all of his miracles were for what purpose? To help help others. others, Other-centered use of power. Always outward flowing to heal, to, to put down demons, to put down disease, to put down death, to promote life, to promote health. So you see not only was power being wrought, it was always wrought in one direction as well. Yes, Wendell. This first miracle, John 2, 11... Uh, um, the, the water to wine. Water to wine. Jesus performed this miracle in Cana in Galilee. There he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It was for a function. And so, do you, do you, so for Christ again for Jesus, was it important he performed miracles? Yes. I think it was. I think it clearly was important. But now we're going to go to the next question. And I'm, here's and for those who would like a. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about this once in a while before, who would like an Ellen White quote to back up what, what we've just concluded by reason and examination of Scripture. <laughs> well, here's an Ellen White quote from Desire of Ages 529. It says, In delaying to come to Lazarus, Christ had a purpose of mercy toward those who had not, who had not received him. He tarried that by raising Lazarus from the dead, he might give to his stubborn, unbelieving people another evidence that he was indeed the resurrection and the life. He was loath to give them up. He was loath to give up all hope 
of the people, the poor wandering sheep of the house of Israel. His heart was breaking because of their impenitence. In his mercy, he proposed, excuse me, in his mercy, he purposed to give them one more evidence that he was the restorer, the one alone who could bring life and immortality to light. This was to be an evidence, and this is the third time that word has come up here, an evidence that the priest could not misinterpret. This was the reason of his delay of going to Bethany. This crowning miracle, the raising of Lazarus, was to set the seal of God on his work and on his claim of divinity. So I think that that just kind of confirms it was important that he do these works to demonstrate that he was the resurrection and the life, that he was the solution to sin and disease and defect, that he was the, 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 the healing bomb of Gilead, so to speak, that was going to be the solution for the woes of, of humankind. Yes? What about Satan performing the miracle? Yeah, we hadn't got there yet. We're going there now. Okay, so here we go. So... So it was very important for Jesus, in addition to demonstrating the truth of his character, that he he do this miracle-working power. But are miracles alone, miracles alone, a good barometer for having confidence in someone? Are they? Another way to say it is, are miracles alone a good basis to put our trust or faith in someone? Why or why not? So can miracles be counterfeited? Yes, comment. I just read a devotion from Ellen White the other day, actually, that said that we should not depend upon miracles because of that reason, because Satan is performing them as well. Uh, we're going to get to that quote here in just a second. Okay. So, you know, we are. No, you guys are, you guys are all thinking ahead. This is the right stuff. We want to build the, build the case on process because we're going to come up with some tension here in a moment, I think. But we want to make the, the, the evidence-based understanding of this. You guys recognize miracles can be counterfeited. So let's look. Is there historical evidence of that happening? John, Jannies and Jambres. Remember Jannies and Jambres? Jannies and Jambres were the uh, magicians in Pharaoh's court who when, when, when uh, uh, Moses threw down the, the, the rod that turned into a serpent, they threw down the staff that turned into serpents and so forth. So they're, they're performing what appears to be similar miracles, okay? Um, and I've got the references in the notes for them. But the biggest, I mean, the most obvious that we all know, a serpent speaks. In Eden, a serpent begins to talk. Remember, there was another animal that talked on God's side. Balaam's donkey talked. Okay, So here we have an an animal talking to bring the truth to Balaam. We have another animal talking over here that's deceiving. Both miracles, aren't they? If if you go home today and your dog or cat starts to talk to you, (laughs) would it get your attention? But how would you know whether the message is coming from God or, or from Satan? Could you know just because the animal's talking? Go see Dr. Tim. <laughs> Check your medicine, he's saying. <laughs> uh-huh. um, how about Satan when, when he tempted Jesus? He, he showed a great panorama of all the nations, and then suddenly they were transported to the top of the temple. I mean, it didn't say they got in a chariot, rode 20 minutes, climbed up a ladder, got up onto the temple. I mean, it didn't. Do, suddenly they're on top of the temple. How'd that happen? Is that a miracle? If we're sitting here talking, suddenly, boom, we're on the top of the church over there. That's some type of a miracle, isn't it? That's what the scripture said that, that Satan did to Christ. Suddenly they're standing on Throw yourself down. Interesting. Did that miracle prove that, that that angel that was there with Christ was from God because he was doing this miracle? Satan brought fire down from heaven in the book of Job, if you remember. And he also brought up a storm. Revelation says the image of the beast will call fire down from heaven. 
So I'm just making the point we have evidence that miracles can be done by evil powers. And so just because a miracle occurs does not mean that the person who's performing the miracle is an agent for good. We all with me? Okay. So here's that quote from Ellen White you were probably referring to. Last day of Vance 169. It says, The way in which Christ worked was to preach the word and to relieve suffering by miraculous works of healing. But I am instructed that we cannot now work in this way, for Satan will exercise his power by working miracles. God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because spurious works of healing claiming to be divine will be wrought. God's people will not find their safety in working miracles, for Satan will counterfeit the miracles that will be wrought. And, and what do you understand this to be saying? What does it mean? How does it apply? What do, we, what do we do with this today as we move forward with discernment and wisdom? How do you apply this insight? First off, do you agree with this? And how do we apply it? What's it mean? That's not a basis of belief. It may be present, but it's not a basis of belief. Okay, so miracles are not a basis of belief. Any other thoughts about this? Does this mean that the true work of God at the end of time, Revelation 18, as the mighty angel coming to give the gospel again, Joel, does Joel actually talk about a latter rain coming? Visions and, and dreams. And visions and dreams and miraculous signs. That, that the true work of God will be unaccompanied by miraculous signs and that the fake work will be miracles. So all we need to do is watch for miracles. If you see miracles, it's the devil. If there's no miracles, it's God. Is that what we look for? Is that how we apply this? Because Joel did prophesy. He said, Afterward, I pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Wonders on the earth at the end of time, the latter day, the latter rain. Would that include miracles? Well, here from the same author that I just quoted a moment ago, who says that that's, but I'm instructed that we cannot now work in this way, for Satan will, will exercise his power by working miracles. God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because spurious miracles. Now, same person who wrote that wrote this. That first quote was written in 1904, this was written in 1886, and then another one in 1909. So we have one in 1911. So we'll have three quotes here, two of them after the first, one before. It was an earnest longing, it was with earnest longing that I look forward to the time. If you look forward to the time, what does that mean? It, It hasn't happened yet. Okay, which means in 1886, this hadn't happened yet. I look forward to the time when the events of the day of Pentecost shall be repeated with even greater power than on that occasion. John says, I saw another angel come down from heaven with a great power and the earth was lighted with his glory. Then, as at the Pentecostal season, the people will hear the truth spoken to them, every man in his own tongue. And then that was 18, 18, uh, 1909. In visions of the night, represent, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Many were praising God. The sick were healed. Other miracles were wrought. A spirit of intercession was seen, even as was manifested before the great day of Pentecost. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestations of the power of God than marked its opening. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given, miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and signs and wonders will follow believers. 
wait a second, hold on. But I am instructed that we cannot now work in this way, for Satan will exercise power to work miracles. God's servants say could not work by means of miracles, by spurious, because spurious works of healing would... Wait. Miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, signs of... Does she mean they cannot only work by miracles? So this is, I'm putting it to you guys, the brain trust. What does it mean? How do we understand the... Is there a contradiction here? Depends on how you read. This is the kind of stuff that really requires thoughtful reflection. A lot of people read this and, and they read on a very superficial level and they go, oh, contradiction! You have to, any thoughts before I weigh in on my thoughts on this? That's not the method by which something is done. Yes, things will occur, but that's not the method. Ah, okay. I, do you understand what he's trying to say here? Any other thoughts, comments? It's a, a matter of where the authority or your, your action or your, your uh, belief is placed. If, if a person places all the confidence and authority on what you're doing in terms of a miracle... That's a limited perspective. Very limited. Did she say in the first quote that miracles would not accompany God's work? No. She didn't say that. She said it wouldn't be the means to be used to advance the gospel. Do you see the difference? What she's saying is that miracles would not be the proof of God's endorsement. And it wouldn't be safe to put our, put our trust in someone because of miracles. She's saying she's not saying that miracles won't be accompanying the final movement, but the evidence of the final movement will not be based upon miracles. That's the difference of what she's saying. That our trust and confidence has to be in the message, not in the miracles. In the truth, not in the manifestation. But the true work of God will still be accompanied by manifestations and miracles. Yes. I have just a real short story to share that would illustrate at least one portion of this authority type thing. Over in Africa, uh, some friends in up in Frederick, Maryland said that everybody understands, every Christian understands that you don't fool around, you don't try to convince a juju priest of anything about Christianity. But the juju priests came to one of their tent meetings and they stood up and challenged the minister there and they said, we want to know if you have power. He said, they prayed and the wind blew the, the flaps of the tent straight out from inside. He said, the juju priest said, we see you have power and they sat down. Do you believe something like that could happen in the Lord's work? Absolutely. Did the fact that the tents, tent flaps blew though prove that it was the Lord's work? No. It did not. <laughs> it did not prove it was the Lord's work. Yes. You have to look at the intention if it's to glorify God or glorify yourself or glorify something else. So the way I put this is that basically miracles are going to accompany both sides. The spurious works and the true the spurious works of miracles and the and the true works of miracles. And therefore the fact that a miracle occurs has zero bearing on whether you can trust the person or not. So you better know his voice. 
So you better know the truth. And we're going to get into that as we unpack the lesson further. So now, once we put, once we've unpacked this a little bit, let's go back to the question titled the lesson, Jesus won their confidence. Yes, it was important for Christ to show miracle working powers. Um, I think we've established the reason. But in addition to miracle working powers, what else did Christ reveal that was necessary to go along with the miracle working powers that won their confidence? The authority of the designer. Okay. Spoke as one with authority. Okay. Pardon? How he uses that. Okay. So his how he used the power. No, okay. So what he did with the power. Okay. Sure. What else? He sought their good. He was interested. In, he was genuinely interested in their welfare. You, have you ever met somebody who really cared about you? You could tell they were really interested in your welfare versus somebody who was interested because they wanted something from you. Have you seen both? Could you tell the difference? Who did you trust more? The one who was genuinely interested in you rather than something, something from you. So I, I think if you put these elements together, we've already said he was kind. Was he kind? Kindness was important. But you can have kindness and have somebody that's not trustworthy. We'll get to why they're not trustworthy in a moment. But trustworthiness. What makes someone trustworthy? We have in the Bible record more evidence of God's power than we'll ever experience personally in our lifetime. And by faith, I walked through the Red Sea. By faith, I stood on Mount Carmel. By faith, I was married at the tomb. And Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. But we believe because we have this testimony of the truth, the complete picture. And those of us who have this big picture are not in the position of the juju priest who knows very little. And I've just observed that God often does things for people who have very little knowledge to encourage them. This is well said. And there's a chapter in the, in, in the book, The God-Shaped Brain, where I talk about the miracles. And if you look through the history of Scripture, miracles are almost always, if not always, done for the weak in faith through the strong in faith. Yes. Say that again. The miracles are done for the weak in faith through the strong in faith. Gideon asked for the fleece miracle because his faith was strong and he had great confidence or it was weak and it needed building up. You following me? It needed building up. And you'll go through scripture and you'll find this all the time. The healings, that all the miracles Christ did were not to strengthen Christ's faith. They were for others. The, the miracles the apostles did, they were not for the apostles' faith. They were for all the other people and uh, so forth and so on. So you'll find this to be the truth today. And so it's very helpful for Christians who are praying for a miracle of healing, who don't get that healing. The, the devil has tricked most of Christianity to give a lie. Well, if you're not getting, it must be you don't have enough faith. It's actually the opposite. If you have great faith, you probably don't need the miracle. Amen. You don't need the miracle to, to reaffirm your confidence and trust in the Lord. You can trust him without the miracle. No That's right. Well, until the very end. Okay. But the apostles, all but John, all the other 11 apostles did not get miraculous deliveries. They died as martyrs. Okay? And John the Baptist didn't get a miraculous delivery. So they had, and what does it say of John? No, no one born of woman had greater faith than John. Okay? And he didn't get the miracle delivery. And so I think it's actually the opposite message, which you'll find much of what's taught in Christianity is about 180 degrees backwards. I'll give you an example. We just gave you one. The example of the miracle. If you, if you, if you don't have a miracle, it means you don't have great faith. It actually is most likely the opposite. But another one, Jesus, our intercessor, is mostly taught Jesus is in heaven pleading to his Father on our behalf. He's 180 degrees back. Turn him around. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the Father's envoy and intercessor to us to win us back to the Father. <laughs> 180 degrees backwards. And many, many teachings like this in Scripture. So what, what, what did he do, I think? Besides the miracles, he was kind. He was trustworthy. We're going to come to what that means in a moment. He was loyal. He was reliable. He genuinely loved people. He broke down prejudices and barriers and, and of, of, of uh, the culture that, that actually caused division. He was gentle. He was merciful. He was knowledgeable. He actually understood, is what the authority you talked about, he understood God's kingdom. He understood how it actually worked. He understood the methods of Satan and how they worked. He understood the true diagnosis of the hearts of human beings and what they needed. He understood reality. And, and even if, if, uh, if, you don't, if you're dealing with somebody who's not a Christian, maybe you have a medical problem, you go to a doctor, and you're talking to a doctor, and you're convinced he understands your situation, he understands medically what's wrong, he understands the science, he understands the solution. Does his understanding of all that's going on win your trust in him? Yeah, so that knowledgeableness, he understood. That's why he talked with one in authority. He understood the true meaning of scriptures and the metaphors and the symbols that were so blurry and smoky that most of the people had no clue what it meant. He could explain it, and it, and, and, and it uh, was, was sensible. He valued truth over tradition. He valued truth over the authority of office. That's a big problem in, in religions today. The authority of office is valued over truth. And that undermines our confidence and trust. He was courageous. He stood firm for what was right in the face of criticism and opposition. He didn't waver. He didn't give in. He didn't compromise. He didn't get pressured into, you know, even, even from his family. Hey, you should go up to Jerusalem and, and preach right now and make a big scene. You'll have lots of, it's not my time. You can go do that. That's not my method. He wouldn't even get pressured by his family. He was true to duty. He was wise. He had real wisdom. I think all of these elements together, I don't think we'd point to any one. I think the whole package. And did I leave any major ones out? Because, of course, he's infinite. I didn't get them all. Any major ones that you think that that, that really helps me trust him? Humility. His humility. Yes. He never sought. I think that's another great one. After he did a miracle, he often, who did that? We don't know. He just disappeared. He didn't t- stop and take glory. He didn't take credit. Didn't have his name, uh, didn't have a star down on the, on, the, on the road there in Hollywood. I think the important question to answer, however, is why. And the why, the answer to all of these questions is because he designed, he's the designer of life. He's the, he's the designer of, of our earth, of humanity. He designed how reality operates. And he understood, like you said earlier, he understood how we had deviated and what was needed for the fix. And then with that in mind, then, the question, what is the message and method that you and me, we, are to be using to win people today? And this quote I'm about to read, I've read the first part of it many times in here, but I want you to notice really the, the very last sentence, as, but I need to read the, the first part to put the context, but the last sentence and see if this, if this resonates with you. This is how you envision your day each day when you get up to, to go out about your business. This is at a Christ Object Lessons 4.15. It says, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made, to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God, the last rays of merciful light. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God 
are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. How do we take this message forward? What's the method? Do you think each morning, Lord, I want to reveal your character. I want to take your glory to the world. I want to live like you lived. I want to be a light to the world, a salt on the earth. Well, what does it mean to reveal God's character in your own when you have this experience? I just wrote a list. This is not a complete list. But think if you agree with this. When, when you're beginning to reveal God's character in your own, then the proud become humble. The mean become kind. The cruel become compassionate. The selfish become loving. The critical become merciful. The gossips become confidence who hold their tongues. The insecure become sure and strong. The fearful become courageous. The hoarders become givers. The weak become strong. The ignorant become knowledgeable. The foolish become wise. The coercive become liberators. The discouraged become hopeful. The doubters become certain. The deceitful become honest. The addicted become free. And those in darkness become enlightened. Is this not what happens? And then if if that happens, if people actually change like this, what impact on them, their families, and their community? What impact? And what, if that happens, when that happens, what does it actually mean when this transformation happens? How is that possible? Is that possible through human effort? Through human strength alone? No. If this, when this transformation happens, when you see this happen in someone's life, you understand you're seeing a miracle? This is miraculous. This is divine power transforming and renewing and recreating and regenerating. And which is a greater evidence of God's divine power? The fact that he can take nothing and create something that's perfect and flawless, or he can take something completely corrupt and corroded and return it to flawlessness. Which is the harder thing to do? It's the second. This is what I think he means when he says, when Christ said, greater things than I you will do, Christ was sinless and demonstrated perfection and sinlessness. He never had habituated sins, evil desires, corrupt motives, um, um, deeply embedded, destructive, sinful patterns of behavior. He never had that. But all of us who come to him have those things, and he removes those, and he renews us, and he rewrites in our minds, characters, even our neural circuitry, new ways of functioning that are like him. I think it's what the church is to accomplish at the end of time, as the third angel's message says, remember, can't, the, the old way of saying it, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, sea, and all that in this. My view is, you take that, fear God, be in awe of God. Not be terrified, not tremble and ter- be in awe, be in awe of God and reveal his, give him glory, reveal his character in yours. Give him glory, reveal his character in yours, because the time in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about who God is, to see him in his true light and choose him. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Worship the designer, the creator. Come back to design law and stop worshiping this dictator. And then when we do that, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, we become the righteousness of God. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This, I think, is the final message. It's a message of our own lives, not just our words, but how we live. And then when we do this, when we see this life-transforming power, will there be miracles accompanying? Do we see few miracles today in our missions, in our work, because we expect few and we ask for few? Because we read that other quote from Ellen White that we are not to work in this way, so we don't even consider the possibility and don't even invite God in to, to, to perform a miracle to be his will. Yes? If truly the transformation of our lives into Christians, true Christians, is a miracle, then there are miracles around us all the time. We just don't have insight and vision to see it. What do you think about what Jesus meant when he said this? Um, John fourteen twelve through 14. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I, will, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Do we ask? First question, what does it mean to ask in his name? In Hebrew culture, what does the name represent? character so he's saying whenever you ask with my character when my character is in you and you ask with my character and here's a ellen white quote if you want one desire of ages 668 but to pray in christ's name means much it means that we are to accept his character manifest his spirit and work his works that's what it means so when we ask with his character ask with his heart his motive to help to heal to promote the truth about god god's kingdom on earth that's when you can be sure he'll provide everything necessary to achieve that. Do we have confidence that you have faith in that? Do you believe that to be true? And so John, 12, John 14, 12 through 14 from the remedy. I tell you the truth. Anyone who generally trusts me will also be in unity with the Father and will reveal his character just as I have been doing. His life will be a further revelation of the life-giving power of God and the healing power of his methods. My life reveals the truth of God's character and methods, but those who trust in me will reveal that God's methods, when applied in trust via the Spirit, actually heal and transform those who are deformed by sin. I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask that is in harmony with my character, methods, and principles, so that the Son may bring glory and honor to the Father by revealing the healing and life-giving power of his methods. You may ask me for anything in harmony with my character and methods, and I will do it. Yeah. But one thing I think we need to remember is that our time is not God's time. And we may ask for these miracles and these changes in people's lives, and it may take years. And I'm here to testify in my family the miracles that have happened, but it certainly took many, many years. It didn't happen overnight. So when we're at, you know, you've kind of brought in another element I think we should unpack. You said specifically asking for miracles in someone else's life. Now you have another individuality at play here. Another, and he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. This is metaphorical for the door to what? To the heart. So you're praying for miraculous transformation of the heart of a loved one. And so when you're praying for that, I believe that God's agencies are going and knocking on those doors. But will your prayers ever cause God to bust those doors open? No, so it may, may take a long time, not because God didn't go in that very moment. Remember, and I, we, have, we have biblical evidence for this. Daniel begins praying for the, for the, uh, the, the king to be impressed, to, to fulfill the prophecy and let the people go. 
It was 21 days later, Gabriel approaches him and comes, as soon as he began praying, at that moment I was sent, but the prince of Persia was opposing me. And, and the prince of Persia, if you remember, Satan is called the prince of this world. So the prince of Persia is a underling to Satan. It's one of Satan's angels. And that angel's opposing Gabriel. And it says, and Gabriel says, only Michael, your prince, was able to help me. Now, if we believe the scripture and, and that when Lucifer rebelled, one third of the angels were taken, that means two thirds were left in heaven. How come Gabriel only has one other being that can help him if, if, we out, if the good angels outnumber the bad angels two to one? Why is that the I only have one other person to help me, Gabriel. Uh, that's Michael, your, your prince. Because this is not a battle of might and power. This is a battle for hearts and minds. And the evil angels were trying to, in, in, in the evil angel, the prince of Persia was trying to inflame selfishness, fear. Don't let those people go. They might rise up against you. Fear. Don't, don't set them free. Tr- trying to, trying to boil those motives up in, in the king's heart, the king of Persia's heart. And Gabriel was there, and Gabriel's a mediator of what? Truth and love. Now, Gabriel took the position that Lucifer fell from. So in God's universe, at that time in, in universal history, who was closer to God and knew more of God's character, truth, methods, and principles of the created beings than Gabriel? No other created being. Gabriel knew that he was most intimate. That's why he's at that position. He's the closest to God now. The only person who could bring more truth and more love, the only being, was the Son of God himself, Michael, your prince. And so God's Son comes to add depth and clarity and truth and, and perspective that Gabriel himself couldn't even understand yet, and the day was won, and the king let the people go. It's brilliant when you see all this. And so we have this evidence that prayer, immediately when you pray, so there's a delay, God's agencies are being dispatched and working. But there's a human heart involved, and that human heart has to make a decision, and that human heart's being impacted by evil forces as well. And so as you say, maybe, maybe decades, maybe sometimes before you see the, the, the choice, or sometimes the choice even with God's intervention, did God intervene for Judas? Did Jesus personally intervene for Judas and try to reach him and even wash his feet? And put, and, and, but Judas hardened against it. So even with those interventions of the Holy Spirit and God and the angels and so forth working on it, it doesn't mean that people will choose to open their heart. So when it comes to those types of miracles in the heart, we keep praying, God keeps working, but not everyone will choose to, to, to follow the, the, the calling of the Holy Spirit and the work of God. So I wasn't really thinking of those type of miracles here. I was thinking of the other types of miracles. Like there is a message, there is an opportunity to take a message into a certain place and there's an obstacle in the way. And, and if that obstacle is removed, you will have the opportunity to give this witness that you pray and God will do this for you. I will tell you, I think we experienced this last year when this ministry had the chance and we took the opportunity and had a booth at the general conference and gave away 40,000 DVDs and books and everything else to the whole world church. Do you understand? It was a miracle that we were, we were allowed to be there. That's right. And we prayed that God would open that for the purpose of sending this message. And we have had all over the world now people are coming to this way of seeing God. So I think those types, he does right, right then. But other types of the actual conversion, it really does require, but he's working. Is that, is that everybody with me on that? Yeah, okay. To compare and contrast a little bit, in football, there's a, there's a uh, saying that if you're really trying to make something happen at the last second or immediately, you throw the Hail Mary. And so from a human perspective, if you think that you can throw the ball one time and, and get an effect, you're gambling. So it takes character to work with God, pray with God, work with God, to make these things happen. Uh, you just 
I was tempted to go off on the history of where that whole phrase came from and uh, educate people or how that came. In fact, uh, I, I can tell you it was in a playoff game with the Dallas Cowboys and the Minnesota Vikings. So I think it was 1972. Roger Staubach was quarterback. It was the last play of the game. Um, they were behind by like six points. And uh, the time was running out, and Roger Staubach goes back, and he, and he says, uh, he threw it up, and he goes, just Hail Mary. Hail Mary full of grace. He's Catholic. Hail Mary full of grace. <laughs> and uh, Drew Pearson caught, caught the ball, went in for the touchdown, and they won, won the Super Bowl. And so after that, the desperate throw at the end of the game is called the Hail Mary. So a little history. So. Miracles also are in perception. Some things that we don't see as being miracles are truly miracles. In Christ, um, you know, when, when he was collecting his disciples, he saw Nathaniel under a fig tree. Right. And he told Nathaniel, I saw you, at, you know, while you're praying under the fig tree, and think, oh, wow. And then Christ's response was, do you believe just because I told you I saw you when you were under a fig tree? You will see much greater things than this. And he said to them, I'm telling you the truth. You will see heaven open and God's angels going up and down on the Son of Man. And yet, when you, you look at the story that we have in the Gospels, we never see the story of angels going up and down on the Son of Man. But in perception, in reality, in, in sanctified perception, that did happen. But that was in perception. It was not something that ever occurred as an event. It was metaphor. It was a metaphor. Yeah. Yes. Also, I think one of the greatest miracles that is kind of a perception thing is in uh, John 2, basically 23 to 25. Basically, Jesus was in Jerusalem uh, at the Passover feast. Many people saw miraculous signs he was doing and believed his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to him, to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about a man, for he knew what was in a man. And to me, that's one of the greatest miracles and something that I think he would like to impart to us. Uh, discernment and perception about where a person is in their walk and how best to fit in with that walk. That's as miraculous as anything you know, physical that you can see or more. Let's jump to Monday's lesson. I'm going to skip Sunday. We, we, got, we took longer on this than I thought, but it was a good discussion. Let's jump to Monday's lesson. The second paragraph says, uh, At the same time, the, as representatives of Christ, we need to walk a fine line. We need to, as Jesus did, win the trust and confidence of people, but their confidence and trust in us needs to be directed toward Jesus. We are mere conduits. They see something of Christ in us, be it selfless, love, caring, self-denial, the good for others, and they are drawn to us. As always, though, if they look at us too carefully because we are all sinners, they might not like what they see. Hence, we must always point them to Jesus in whom they can alone can put their full confidence. The rest of us, sooner or later, are bound to disappoint. I think it's a very good point. As Christ's representatives, all of us other than Jesus are imperfect. All of us other than Jesus are imperfect, and we need to be pointing uh, people to Christ. Um, but do we allow for this in our own journey and walk? That you've listened to someone, uh, maybe um, you've heard some, some inspiring truth, but then later you hear something about a struggle that they've had in their life, and then do you discount what, what you heard because that person was struggling, and you don't listen anymore because they have a problem? Um, this is one of, I think, Satan's strategies. If you can't defeat the message, do you try to undermine the messenger. You try to ruin the reputation of the messenger. Well, think about this. Jonah... Did he have a, 
uh, a prejudice problem? Did that mean his message was false? David, did he have anger issues? Yeah. Was he an enemy of God? How about when you think of the apostles, the apostles and prophets who wrote scripture and the, and the, and the, and the 11 that stayed faithful, the apostles, do you see them as, as, as human beings? Do, you ideal, do we idealize them and see them as bigger than life, bigger than human? Have you ever considered what it might have been like had you been back there and had to talk to one of these apostles and see them in action? Paul is described by the Corinthians as small, weak, and a very bad speaker. Boring. Isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Peter was impulsive. Think about being around Peter. He blurted out answers constantly, interrupted, didn't wait his turn. He jumped out of boats. He cut off ears. He, he frequently uh, acted without thinking. Um, is this not true? Yeah. James and John were called the sons of thunder, constantly vying for first place, uh, even going to have little private meetings behind the scenes to see if we can be on the left and one on the right. And, the, and when somebody didn't do what they wanted to, well, let's call fire down from heaven and smoke them. And this was James and John. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, do, do you see them like this? Um, what about Matthew? Do you think Matthew was perhaps the quiet, unassuming, introvert accountant? Or maybe he was the proud, intrusive extortionist? Do, do, you, do, you, do you see them as human beings? Or do we build them up into these bigger-than-life these were human beings with their own weaknesses, their own struggles, and they needed the transforming power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit in their life to smooth off the rough edges and to build up the, the godly character, just as we do. Are we gracious to people? Do we allow for that growth, or do we judge? So is there a place for apology when you realize that your faults of character have hindered other people's progress towards the truth? Hmm, that's a difficult question. Because the way you did, you didn't say that is there a place for apology when you have actually injured another. You said, is there a place for apology when your own personal struggles have caused someone else to fall? And I, I think not. Because what's happening there, your own personal struggles are not where you've actually gone out and injured another, you've, you've actually done wrong, you haven't sinned against another person, but they may be, the problem is somebody else has put you on a pedestal where you never belonged, and it's their own misperception and their own misunderstanding, their own idealization that caused them to stumble, not your particular weakness. And for you to apologize, it would, it would then t- you would be taking ownership over their failure to be clear in their own thinking and, and put their own values right, and it would be your fault that they did this, and it's not true. That would be creating a lie. But if you want to use the word apology, the way to do it is as you grow and mature and they see the growth and maturity in you and the overcoming of the foibles in your life, that can be a positive influence on them. Um, I think this, this attacking of the messenger rather than the message is a classic attack that happened to Ellen White with the whole plagiarism allegation. The plagiarism allegation is, the, the question is, is it true or not? I, I, I have a relative who... who um, who has had some struggles along this issue, as far as I know. And, uh, and uh, his wife has, has had a brain tumor. And I, I suggested that this be presented to him. Um, if you uh, read in a neurology journal a particular treatment that works for that brain tumor, and in fact, it works. 100% of people who take that treatment, they get well. And you can apply this to your wife, but you found out before you applied it that he plagiarized it from someone else. Would you use the treatment or say, he's plagiarism, I wouldn't use it? Even though 100% of people who use it get well. See, it's not really relevant. The question is, is it true and does it work? That's the question. And so our responsibility when you read any source, whether it's me, whether it's on white, even the scripture, your responsibility is, that, is it true and does it work? 
That's the question. And if you want to know the truth about pleasures, then Jed Lake's recent book is very, very good and very well researched, and you can find out the truth about that, and you'll love Ellen White more than ever. <laughs> Jed Lake, um, I don't know the name of it. It's in the ABC. So in the last paragraph it says, of course, we don't have to be perfect or have perfect church before we can minister to the needs of others. At the same time, we must seek to be the kind of people whom, to some degree, others can learn to count on and trust. And I want to stop with that. Others can learn to count on and trust. And I really wanted to spend a little time on this question of what is it that makes someone trustworthy? What does it make someone, someone you can't trust? What is the issue here? Well, here's two passages from Scripture to see if they have any bearing. What, what are you pulling out of these to see if they have any bearing on whether this makes someone trustworthy or not? Ephesians 4, 14, and 15. It says, there will, will no longer be infants tossed, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, by the way, this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, it's still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What qualities are you hearing here? Maturity versus immaturity. Maturity versus immaturity. Ability to think for yourself, to discern, to weigh evidences, to draw conclusions, to, to tell the difference between a truth and a lie, to be able to stand firm for what is true and not be overly influenced by the opinions of others, not being tossed to and fro by the opinions of these doctors and, 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 uh, and theologians and professors and great speakers that come along and, oh, is the great speaker, oh, how wonderful is that? And you get tossed to and fro by these people. You have the ability to stand firm what's true despite who's presenting. So I want to tell you, in closing, two types of untrustworthiness. Untrustworthiness. And I will tell you, in my practice, almost all my patients miss the second one. First type of untrustworthiness everybody gets. Nobody here would be deceived by this. And that is the untrustworthiness of a person who has in their heart intent to harm. The the Taliban terrorist who wants to kill Americans, you don't trust them. The pedophile predator, the uh, antisocial criminal, the people who are plotting and planning evil, that's easy. We don't trust those people, do we? Okay. Do you understand most of the people in your worldview, the most people you deal with day and day, they're not those. It's the other. It's the other group, and the other group is the untrustworthy of the good intended, immature people. Good intended, immature people. So you're a treasurer of your church, and you've collected five thousand dollars this weekend, and you've got it ready to go to the bank. And your child, your five-year-old, six-year-old, comes up to you and says, "Mommy, I'll take it to the bank for you." Do you trust him with the 5000 in cash? Because they intend to do evil? Because they want to steal? They want to rip you off? No, because they're not mature enough to handle the responsibility. And most of the problems we have with getting exploited and taken advantage and having breaches of trust is that we've trusted someone who is not mature enough to handle the responsibility or the trust placed in them. And I see this in marriages. I see people marrying people who haven't yet gained self-mastery. And so you look at the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit describe the various traits of character that as we grow in Christ, that we get patience, kindness, lotus, But the last, self-control. The ability to restrain one's own 
self-impulses to do what's healthy and right, to stand firm and true, to not be influenced by the opinions of others, to be able to tolerate rejection. I see this all the time in people. They're so immature, they're needy of approval. And they're so needy of approval, they can be influenced by others to do something that they don't even believe is right. This is children. This is immaturity. There's no evil intent. They don't want to do wrong. But they do wrong over and over again. They hurt over. You can't trust people like this. And then they're not masters of themselves. So Peter in the upper room, Jesus says, everyone's going to run away. And and Peter says, not me, Lord. I'd even give my life. I'd die. Was Peter lying to him? If you put Peter in a lie detector, he'd have passed it. He meant every word. He was sincere. His His heart meant the right thing. So does that mean Jesus could now trust him? Jesus couldn't trust him. Why? He's not trying to. He means it. Did Peter love Jesus? But notice, he still loved himself more. And as long as he loved himself more than Jesus, when his life got threatened, he needed to protect himself. And so he threw Jesus under the bus in order to protect self. And the real people you can trust in this world have gained that maturity and they've had that conversion experience. And so Jesus said to Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. That conversion experience where they've come to say, in the relation with Jesus Christ, I surrender all, I die to self. And they come to love God and others more than self. And you're in a relationship with someone who you know loves you more than they love themselves, you can trust those people. And that's the big key. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are trustworthy. That you didn't just tell us that you loved us. That you sent Jesus Christ who showed us. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. That he never used power to protect self. That he would let his own creatures mistreat, abuse, and ultimately kill him rather than to take our freedoms and liberties. He loves us and you love us so much. You have won us to trust because you are completely and ultimately and absolutely and infinitely trustworthy. We ask that your spirit now, as we open the door to our hearts, we pour it out and take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, help mature us, help us overcome the weaknesses and shortcomings in our own lives that we've struggled with. Give us the freedom from our our, our past mistakes, any guilt and shame, and and allow us to move forward as as true ambassadors of you to, to give you glory in this time of earth's history that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.